the thing that's really critical to understand is that cultures evolve and things change. And, you know, where India is right now, in terms of some of these ideas, is where we were maybe 40 or 50 years ago. And we as Westerners have no right to actually impose our viewpoint on them. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. So today's interview is kind of a two-parter, mainly because we recorded the first half of the interview in Toronto and then the second half in London. I am international like that, guys. Nisha Pahuja is an Emmy-nominated filmmaker based in Toronto. Her credits include To Kill a Tiger, which is what we're here to talk about today. It is the winner of 19 awards from festivals including TIFF, Palm Springs International Film Festival, Doc Aviv, and the Canadian Screen Awards. I also had the pleasure of moderating the premiere of the film here in Dallas with the executive producers. The film was released theatrically in the U.S. this fall. The New York Times included it in their list of most anticipated fall releases. And Anne Thompson at the IndieWire named it to her Oscars contenders list for 2024. Both Mindy Kaling and Dan Patel signed on to the film as executive producers as well. And I cannot tell you how fantastic, inspiring, impactful this documentary is. Please go watch it. Trust me, you will go through all the emotions. Bahuja's previous films include the Emmy-nominated The World Before Her, the featured documentary Bollywood Bound, and the three-part series Diamond Road. Look, Nisha is a force to be reckoned with. She is a writer, an artist, a director, and she really, really cares about social impact. And it was just an honor to talk to her. I caught her at a really, really busy time when she is traveling for this film, and I so appreciated her getting on a call with me in two different countries. So thank you, Nisha. I enjoyed every second of our conversation, despite the audio and every other issue we had to deal with. I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Nisha Bahuja. First, I want to tell you I loved meeting your EPs, Neeraj and Anita Bhatia. I know they're from Dallas. I just moved here uh, last year and got connected with them through Product of Culture. Initially, just as a guest, and then, you know, I've worked with Product of Culture many times, and they were like, hey, why don't you uh, get on there and, you know, be a moderator? So all happened within like 24 hours. Yeah, they're great. They're all great. I mean, Neeraj and Anita are great, and Product of Culture are great. Yeah. So tell me what's going on with you quickly right now. I know you're probably traveling, flying everywhere, viewings, premieres. What's happening? (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's really frantic. Literally yesterday I came back from the States where we were kind of screening around the country for a couple of weeks. Had this amazing screening in Washington. That was our last screening. It was sold out and Atul Gawande was, was the moderator. And we had this amazing woman from Equality Now, Barbara Jimenez-Santiago, and she was one of the panelists. You know, it's been a bit of a whirlwind and it continues. And, you know, tonight I'm flying to, to London and then... Um, I'm back to Los Angeles on Friday. Just a few flights here and there. <laughs> well, first, congratulations. I've obviously seen the film. I watch a lot of documentaries. I think a lot of us a lot of us do. I haven't been touched like this in a while. 
and I want to I want to tell you you guys have created something very powerful, which I, I feel like you sh- you know, but just letting you know again. And I just wanted to get your story on how you got involved. I have so many questions for you, but I, you know, let's let's uh, let's get through the main stuff, and I'll I'll come back and bug you again. So just tell me initially how you got involved in this project. When did you first hear about Ranjith and Kiran? And I want to kind of double the question and ask you, because it is such an emotional, intense, inspiring movie. What were the moments for you that were the hardest to film? The way I came across the story was very organically. I was, I was filming actually the work of the NGO that we follow in the film. They had started a large-scale program across the state of Jharkhand, working with men and boys on issues of masculinity. It was a gender sensitization program they were running. And Ranjit was enrolled in that program. And then when this happened to his daughter, they kind of kicked into high gear and started to support him and the case. And we were following, because you know, we were filming the work of the NGO, we started to follow the story. Long story short, we got into the edit room. We had hundreds of hours of material. We were going to weave this story, you know, Ranjit and Kiran's story, with two other storylines. And once, after about a couple of years of editing, we realized that this film just needed its own film. It just had to be its own story. So we shifted gears and and made the film that we have today. It is, as you say, a very emotional story and everyone feels it. And definitely capturing it, being in the field, getting some of those moments was very intense and very emotionally trying more trying than anything else I have filmed before. And I would say for me, the scenes that were the hardest to film were always the scenes with her, the scenes that featured her. And I think there are two that really come to mind. Uh, The first is when she's meeting the NGO for the first time, when Pushpa from the Srijan Foundation comes in and, and is talking to her. That was very difficult to film. And then the second thing that was very difficult to film was the day, the night that she was rehearsing, like going through her testimony and stuff, you know, like going through her. It's called the first information report. So it's when she's reviewing her first information report. So as an audience member, those two moments were probably, for me, the hardest to watch. I mean, you guys did not shy away from the content, the story. Obviously, the heroes in this are Ranjit and Kiran and... There's so much I want to say about them, but like, I was trying to f- figure out, you know, how did, how do you describe these people? I mean, there's, there's not enough words for it, but to me, the quiet hero, the humble hero, you watch Kieran, you listen to her, you don't assume someone like that has the bravery she did and him. And that to me was so powerful. And I was like, wow, these people are, for lack of a better term, they're badasses, but they're just so, just quiet courage which is so, we need that nowadays. I don't, I, you don't see that anymore. They grew up in a village, in a rural village in India. We all have stereotypes of people that, that live there. Watching a man like Ranjit do what he did, I mean, it is, it's so inspiring. I'm like, okay, the world is not all bad, <laughs> you know? It makes you rethink everything about stereotyping people that are, poor, that live in India, that live in rural India, you know, and it's, it's, there's so many layers to the story. I think the other part of it I really appreciated is that you guys really did take so many different points of views and kind of let them say what they thought was right or wrong. So you had obviously the, the wonderful men and women at the Sir John Foundation, 
the defense lawyer, right? You know, you, you let her say her piece. The Mukia. And who's the yeah. orange shirt guy? What was his name again? The ward member. The ward member. <laughs> yeah. And you gave the story from all points of views. And so I guess my question is, obviously, these people all, are all intelligent, but do they really understand the true reason you're making the film? And how do they feel about being filmed? It's an interesting question, right? Because I think what it is supposing is that they think that they're wrong and they don't. The reason I asked everyone's opinion and the reason they express it so openly is because they think they're right. This is the culture that they live in. This is the reality of the world that they inhabit. And from their perspective, it's absolutely correct. And we as Westerners have no right to actually impose our viewpoint on them. The thing that's really critical to understand is that cultures evolve and things change. And, you know, where India is right now, in terms of some of these ideas, is where we were maybe 40 or 50 years ago. The attitudes that Kiran had to face at court, in her community, those aren't attitudes that we don't have to deal with as women here in the West. Our judicial system, our first responders, the police that, that survivors have to deal with here, those prejudices are absolutely the same. They're exactly the same, you know? They're no different. What was sort of exceptional about that story is this idea of marrying your rapist. That's what was so exceptional. And also just the, I would say, the idea of rape as an epidemic in India. That's, there's no, we cannot deny that. That's the truth. But really, what survivors face in India is no different than what survivors face here. Those prejudices are exactly the same, you know? Completely. I, I, another note I wrote was like, wow, you know, yeah, we think, sure, people in rural India are backwards. They think this way. I'm like, actually, you know, the whole idea that, you know, it was beautiful when, when people from the NGO were telling her, you know, you're, you are not stained. It is not your fault. But of course, everyone around her in the village was like, okay, what she wore? Why was she out late? We have the same conversations here. There's nothing different about it. Nothing different, you know, so it's completely different. I feel that part of the reason that people are really open with me and my crew when we're in the field, and, you know, I've spent so many years filming in India. So these ideas and, and the things that people express, they don't make me angry. And they also don't shock me. I don't get these positions from people in order to be sensationalist, right? It's really kind of presenting the issue as it is. It's really about, okay, how do we find the solution? And also it's important to, to give everyone the ability to express where they are, because that's the only way you can understand the, the depth of the problem, right? Like if you, if you think about it, you know, what the lawyer, what the defense attorney is expressing, and she's got this incredible education, is no different from what the ward member is expressing or what the mukia is expressing in the community. So you understand how deeply entrenched those issues are, right? So when you understand how deeply entrenched the issues are, then you also understand the work that needs to be done in order to create change, to create. Well, especially when the defense lawyer was like, she said something along the lines of, I can't trust my own son. I was like, wow, that it's so deep. And I feel like at times... To be perfectly honest, I was getting angrier at all the women because I'm like, God, you guys are making this worse or maybe are the problem. I don't know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But I'm like, no, it should, why are the women even like this, you know? And sometimes maybe even more judgmental. I know you, you can't go in there 
being like, we're the Westerners and we're going to save you. And our point, you know, you're wrong, we're right. I think exactly what you said. You went in there very much like wanting to hear everyone's point of view, which I think it comes across really well and it, it comes across really fair. And so kudos to you guys for that because I'm sure that's really hard. Obviously, a big theme of this film and the story is shame. What is shame? What, how, how does shame play a role with Ranjith, with, with Kiran, with, you know, everyone involved in this incident? And so... I love our culture. I love being Indian, but shame is a big part of it. What is your relationship with shame? Oh, what a great question, Ani. <laughs> Boy, you don't pull any punches, huh? <laughs> I do not, my friend. <laughs> um, my God, how do I even unpack that? It's as you say, right? Like it is something that is so deeply ingrained in our culture. And so we grow up with it, whether we're men or women, right? Whether we're boys or girls, we grow up with a certain idea of what are people going to think? I think it's a lot easier for me to talk about these sorts of things intellectually as opposed to emotionally, because I think emotionally I have to, I have to really think about it. But I think intellectually what I, what I realize is, is that that process of shame and that process of forcing someone to constantly second-guess themselves and to be self-conscious, you're divorced from who you really are, right? So I, I feel for me... So much of the last 10 years of my life has been about unlearning behavior and freeing myself from the kinds of prejudices and the voices that I'm constantly hearing in my head that have been instilled into me because of our culture and because of our community and this idea of what are people going to think, right? So that I think there's a journey that I'm on myself of one of like trying to be free and understanding whatever society that we live in, whatever cultural milieu we come from, it imposes rules and it imposes structures and these constructs, you know, whether it's patriarchy, whether it's capitalism, you know, consumerism, it puts you in boxes. And what that does is it actually divorces you from who you really are. And so the journey is to come to who you really are. You could not have said it better. And I guarantee you, Nisha, you're my 135th episode now. It's a common theme amongst all of us. I feel like in my 40s now, I'm realizing stuff I never even thought about, you know, when I was younger and realizing the subtle behaviors that I was taught by my parents who are loving and the best and, you know, amazing parents. But it's so ingrained in our DNA. I, many of us have not even realized it till later. I'm realizing how big shame is in my life. And I am trying now to unravel that because I have two daughters and I, I don't want this to pass on. And it's, it's really hard. It's a struggle. I have shame in many areas of my life. Yeah, like you don't want it to pass on. You know, it's almost like it's an inheritance. It's like a cultural inheritance and we just keep giving it to the next generation. We keep infecting the next generation with it, right? And somehow, somehow we have to stop it at least you know, now all of us are more aware. I don't know if I'm stopping it completely, but I'm aware, you know, even watching the film. And I was like, you know what? Shame is part of such a big part of Indian culture and especially even women, right? I think it's definitely something we all need to talk about more. I would love to like deep dive one day with you about that. So I wanted to ask you guys also from filming point of view, I know towards the end, 
there was a lot of uproar about your crew being there. Was there ever times you guys were worried about safety, like had to stop filming anything behind the scenes that we didn't see? That experience of that scene where, you know, it looks like we might be attacked or whatever. I was afraid. There's no doubt that I was afraid. But the other emotion that went through me, the other feeling that I had was one of shame. Like where I actually felt ashamed for what I had created in a way. I felt in a way responsible for inviting the ire of the villagers and making people angry and upsetting a kind of... The intention so much was to try to change something or look at something without judgment. That was the intention of the, of the film, to try to look at a problem and understand you know, how, how to change the problem. And I think in spite of that intention, that was a really difficult, it was a really difficult thing to kind of look at and accept. But yes, I mean, there, there were other, definitely there were other times when there was tension. This wasn't the first time. But uh, there was tension at the very beginning when we were filming. And then it went away. And the family wanted us to keep filming. Because we said to them, we said, okay, you know, should we, we don't have to do this, right? Like we can, you know, we can just support you from the sidelines. We don't need to film the story. It's, it's all good. Like if you want us to keep filming, we will, but we don't have to. And they wanted us to keep filming. Good for them, man. They are, yeah, they're definitely beyond quiet heroes. Are you in touch with them now? How are they doing? I just spoke with Karen three or four days back. She's great. You know, she's great. We're hoping that they they can come to the U.S. We've traveled with them to the U.K. for, for screenings. And we're talking, you know, they really want to come to come to America. So we're hoping we can make that happen. But she's just trying to figure out what she is going to do with her life and where to go, where to put her energy. So we just had a long conversation about the fact that it's a journey and, you know, she needs to not put pressure on herself to figure it all out now. Oh, yeah. It's very much a journey. I didn't discover my, my whole life till my 40s and I'm still discovering it. So tell Karen, take your time, my friend, take your time. Any next projects you can talk about? Anything else? I know right now you're busy with this, but any other projects you're working on that you could talk about? This film, To Kill a Tiger, actually was a very different film. And, that, and it was a film that was about masculinity. Like what I had set out to make with this film was, was a film on masculinity. So because I have so much material still that didn't make it into this, this film, these two other storylines, that's what I'm working on right now. I'm going to finish the film that I started, essentially, is what I'm doing. Amazing. Well, you know, I did research you. I did, I did my Wikipedia research and everything. I know, you know, you studied English Lit at University of Toronto. I, I, I had a quick question. I want to do a little bit about growing up, and then I'm definitely going to have to get you back on at some point. I know you moved to Canada in, your early se- in the early 70s from India. Tell me about that time in the 70s, coming there from India as a young uh, g- girl. How was that for you? Because I know a lot of the U.S. stories. I, I can only assume growing up, you know, there would be the same concepts, but how was it for you? It was very difficult. There's no doubt. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that racism and being an immigrant played a huge part in in my life and shaping me. And talk about shame, right? Like, so it's not just the stuff that we learned at home in our culture, but it was also the way the mainstream made you feel. Obviously, it was very challenging and very difficult to be the child of immigrants. In that sense, it's kind of a typical narrative, you know. 
just what it means to come to a country where nobody looks like you or where people who do look like you aren't represented, aren't seen. And so you grow up feeling insecure, inferior, ashamed of your background, ashamed of your skin color, ashamed of your parents, you know, I mean, that kind of thing. That was what I experienced. And, you know, a real desire to fit in, a real sense of sort of questioning who, who I was, rejecting everything Indian, you know, rejecting that identity and, and trying to sort of embrace this kind of mainstream white kind of uh, cultural identity. And there are some great things about that belief system, right? I mean, there is a fundamental belief in democracy and equality and women's rights. And uh, so I definitely gravitated towards those aspects and questioned all of the negative things about our culture. But yeah, it was, it was, it was really difficult, right? You don't know who you are and, and where you belong. And you spend so much of your, of your time, I think, as a young person rejecting one identity and then trying to kind of heal the division that's been created by rejecting that, you know, and then sort of trying to figure out who you are. Now, looking back, you know, now I think, what a gift. What a gift that whole experience has been. Like, being on the outside, and, and I would say that that probably had a lot to do with me becoming a documentary filmmaker. You know, it's a sense of we're not comfortable in front of the camera. You know, we're observers and we're trying to understand reality. You know, we're asking these sorts of fundamental questions. And I'm sure that that idea of never quite being on the inside and being on the outside is, is what made me partly want to become a doc filmmaker. And it is a gift because it gives you a different perspective, right? I don't know about you, right, but I speak pretty fluent Hindi as a result of constantly spending time in India. And it just gives you, even language, gives you a different way of looking at the world, of, of viewing the world. So I find now really grateful that I had that, I had that experience, you know, that I'm, that I'm not a flying culture. Right. We get, to, we get to have two really cool identities now that we can embrace in, in both ways. I'm Gujarati. So I actually lived in India for four years. I lived one time in between my first job at Enron. I think we talked about this in law school. I was a, a backup Bollywood dancer and I was working at in Bombay and, and living in Bandra and doing all that stuff. And then I lived in India again after we got married. So we did Delhi for a year and a half and Bangalore for a year and a half because of my husband's job and also going to India every summer. So I've always had a really strong connection to India as well. My Hindi used to be good. I can, I can hang in Gujarati, though, but it's pretty ghetto. And I went to the mandir yesterday, and the first thing I did was see a lot of negative behavior and attitudes that I didn't recognize from childhood about the way the mandir was run and how it was very male-dominated. And all these things just started bugging me right away instead of, like, focusing on the darshan. I'm curious... With you, what is your relationship to our culture and religion in that way? And has it changed over the years? To our culture and our religion? Yes. Like, you know, I don't know if you are religious, if not, but how you view our culture, has it changed over the years, especially being a filmmaker? Well, I'm not religious, so I'm not really somebody who goes to temple or it's not really my thing. I don't celebrate a lot of festivals and that kind of stuff has never really been important. It's never been important to me. In terms of our culture, my relationship with it is one of, and it has changed over the years, it's one of immense appreciation. 
when you look at something, at least when I look at something, I look at the intention and the thought that, that goes behind it, right? I don't necessarily look at how it manifests because how it manifests and what we do with culture or with religion, that's the frailty and that's the, that's the result of our own impurities as human beings. The thing itself is beautiful. The intention and, and what it's rooted in is so, it's so rich and so deeply philosophical. So I, I hang on to that stuff, which is partly why I don't get angry when I'm in India, you know, and, and, and these attitudes are kind of espoused, right? Because, I mean, that's a whole other sort of side tangent. But I would say that, that what's happened over the years has been a, a much more pronounced and a profound appreciation of what our culture is and the depth of the culture and the richness of the culture. And that has to do primarily with the fact that it's rooted in community it's rooted in in family and bonds in humanity and it's root it's rooted in this idea that what we have to uh, obliterate and what we have to constantly be mindful of is the ego and i find in the west it's actually the opposite the, the west is all about the ego it's all about the individual it's all about the me it's all about the immediacy of what i want of entitlement and whereas i think in older cultures and it's not just India, but just cultures that are much, much older. There's an understanding, right? That it's actually, it's not the individual, it's the collective. I mean, I could not agree more. My husband went to Harvard Business School. So we go to the reunions every five, 10 years. Last reunion, there was a class, I think it was called Happiness or the Happiness Lab or something like that. So, you know, we like the reunions, they have, you have these special classes you can go to, you can see your professors. So he went to this, are you happy lab or happiness lab? They've done a study. It's, it's a famous study, a 75 year study on happiness. The number one answer to happiness is being connected, community, relationships. That's it. That really comes down to that. That's what it comes down to. I know that's what our culture, that's what our culture is about. Like we got it right. <laughs> Okay, so I, you, you studied English Lit at University of Toronto, and you, you were, I believe, writing fiction. And then you made the switch to focus on documentaries. So to kind of tell me about that. And then also, of course, you know, I was reading about the world before her. Was that your first big doc? Uh, kind of tell me about the whole journey on that. So I, I wouldn't say I was writing fiction. I would say that I was attempting to write fiction. <laughs> I was writing. I was trying my hand at I was doing and then I fell into documentary very accidentally actually I was it, I just happened to be at the right place at the, at, at the right time somebody needed a researcher for a doc and and I got the job having no background in research or documentary or filmmaking and then once I got into it I just started to feel more and more this was you know this was my calling and I know that it had to do with the fact that with doc filmmaking it sort of married two very pertinent interest for me, you know, one which is social justice and human rights, and then the other is creativity and, and, and storytelling. So it's a perfect, perfect blend of the two. Then I, I made my own film many years ago, which was about NRIs who try to become Bollywood film stars in India. And one of the women in the film was Niru Bajwa. This is in the early 90s or 2000, 2000? It was in the year 2000, I think. 
I feel like we must have overlapped at some point. I was, well, I was there 2002 to three, and it felt like that year during that time, there were so many NRIs coming in. The whole scene seemed very different. And so I'm so interested that you did this. Yeah. Do you remember Ruby Patia? Yeah. So Ruby was one of the people I followed in the film. Oh, okay. Niru now has become a huge movie star. She's a Punjabi film star. She's huge. So Niru, Ruby, and then this brother and sister team named Vikram and Bikina Dillon. And they were two of the people. They were, they were working at Channel V. So I made that film. That was a big film. It was, you know, closing night at Hot Docs, which is a big doc festival, and did a number of festivals, did well. Then I did a big three-part series on the global diamond trade, which was really, really interesting. And then I did The World Before Her, which was a very successful, critically acclaimed film, which was about two groups of women, you know, women who, were, who wanted to become Miss India and then women who were in a Hindu, fun, a Hindu nationalist training camp, the Durgavani training. That must have been a very interesting experience. So when I was reading it, reading about you and, and reading about the, the doc, it said, you know, in whatever Wikipedia page or some article that after the 20... 12 Delhi gang rape, I think you fought your way to get screenings all over India, right, at the documentary, and you worked with NGOs. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? That must have been pretty intense. That was incredible. So I made The World Before Her, and The World Before Her was looking at how competing ideologies like nationalism, fundamentalism, and capitalism, you know, like hypercapitalism, how these competing ideologies around what India was going to be how these ideologies were, were playing themselves out on the bodies of women. Literally, that was the sort of the thesis of the film. What connected the two stories in a very literal sense was this idea of female infanticide, because one of the young women in the film who went on to become a Miss India was going to be the victim of female infanticide. It was her mother who saved her life. She left her, she left her husband. And then the other young woman in the film who's, you know, who belongs to the VHP, she also talked about female infanticide and, and the fact that she tolerated so much abuse from her father because at least he didn't kill her, you know, when she was born. So I thought, okay, this is a really important subject and we need to kind of address this idea of in fact, female infanticide, female feticide, the very skewed gender ratio, which interestingly enough is, you know, in places like Haryana and Punjab, it is getting better with, without a doubt. So I, I worked with a number of organizations and women's rights organizations and human rights organizations and did a four-state screening tour of the film and that was really something else it was really really something else it was the first impact campaign that I had that I had run so it was yeah it was it was a, a really amazing experience a lot of exposure to parts of the country that I'd never been in and then of course the ability to engage with people really at a grassroots was was an incredible experience. I'm going to assume you must have had some negative feedback from that, from people there. No? None. Wow. None. There was no negative feedback. I think it's it's really interesting with the world before her, and I think even with To Kill a Tiger, I think the reason people who are represented in, in the films that I make, not all of them, but by and large, most of them really are are really happy with how they've been portrayed and they don't have an issue. So with the world before her, I thought we were going to get shut down by 
the VHP because they were threatening to shut us down. And they were threatening to shut us down the day that we launched in theaters in India. You know, they called me because I, I know a lot of them. They called me and they and I said, if you want to shut if you want to shut us down, go ahead. That's I can't stop you from doing that. But what I would suggest is you go and watch the film first. And if you still feel that way, then then do your protests, you know, do do whatever you have to do. But I'm I'm not pulling the film, nor am I changing the film. And you've not seen the film. And I had tried very systematically to get the people at the higher levels to watch the film and they just weren't bothering to go. And they had no problem with it. You know, they had no no issue with the film whatsoever. So they didn't create a stink. And then the Miss India people definitely had a problem with it. <laughs> But they also, not enough to kind of like protest and stop the film from running. Well, that's a kudos to you and your team for building that kind of environment and understanding their psyche as well and not being aggressive about it, but just kind of saying, presenting it to them in a way where it's not threatening. Well, that's exactly what it is, right? I mean, people are intelligent. Like with Dev, Dev made a really amazing comment, Dev Patel. At our screening in New York, he, you know, he said, "I believe in the power of an intelligence, an intelligent audience," and that really struck with me. Actually, maybe I do as well. I've never articulated it in that way, but I've always just believed that my job, and this has evolved. But you know, over the last several years, I would say I've become just less and less judgmental, and I feel that what I am to do is to simply present things as they are, you know, to, to the best of my ability and, and to give people the space to kind of speak their truth. Tuckered Out is hosted by me, Ami Tucker. This episode is produced by Jeannie Media with Jeannie Saraswathi, Ashley Tuff, Micah Sweetman, Hans Andres, and Laura Radescu. You can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast on Instagram, And please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast.